Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome, everybody. This is Suze McCormick. I am co-chair of our ESG and our social impact practice groups here at MoFo, and I've been at the firm a little more than 25 years. But as many of we have been partnering with BSR, or Business for Social Responsibility, which is really the leader for over three decades addressing environmental, social, and governance issues for corporations and investors. And it is really great to be here today. This is our eighth episode of this conversation series. And today we have a special guest host who is going to be leading our discussion. And that is my fellow MOFO partner, Mark Whitaker. Mark is not only the co-chair of our IP litigation practice here at MOFO, he is also the co-chair of our diversity strategy committee, which is building upon decades of experience leading law firms in diversity and inclusion efforts. He is a frequent speaker at the ABA, the Practicing Law Institute, the Minority Corporate Council Association, and numerous CLE events all over the country. He really is an expert, and I am honored that Mark is going to be leading our discussion today. Over to Mark. Thank you very much, Suze, for the introduction, and welcome, everyone. It's great to be here and to see all of you. We're joined today by two leading voices on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and social justice initiatives, Michael McAfee, President and CEO at PolicyLink, and Jared Green, Co-Director, Center for Business and Social Justice at BSR. Today's discussion will be focused on the business implications of the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action. Uh, Dr. Michael McAfee became President and CEO of PolicyLink in 2018, seven years after becoming the inaugural director of the Promise Neighborhoods Institute at PolicyLink. During his time at PolicyLink, Michael has played a leadership role in securing Promise Neighborhoods as a permanent federal program, led efforts to improve outcomes for more than 300,000 children, and facilitated the investment of billions of dollars in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. He is the catalyst for a new and growing body of work, corporate racial equity, which includes the first comprehensive tool to guide private sector com companies in assessing and actively promoting equity in every aspect of their company's value chain. Michael carries forward the legacy to realize the promise of equity, just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. Jared Green has served as the co-director of the Center for Business and Social Justice at BSR since October 2022. Prior to joining BSR, Jared worked at Friedman Consulting, where he developed and managed strategic philanthropic initiatives, including donor coalitions and nonprofit initiatives focused on racial and civic justice issues, climate sustainability impacts, and public health. Jared has also served in senior research and project management capacities at the Democracy Collaborative and the Center for Social Inclusion, where he led and supported policy research and advocacy efforts that aim to dismantle structural racial inequities through community and economic development practices. Thank you both for taking your time to join us for this discussion today. So let me go ahead and kick this off 
with a threshold question. And that is, what is affirmative action and how has it historically been implemented to affect the access of minorities and women in higher education, government, and business? Affirmative action, the way we think about it today, it's a, it's a central racial component that grew out of the recognition during the civil rights movement that simply stopping de jure segregation wasn't enough to address centuries of discrimination in employment and education. And so that the federal government sought to nurture to racial equality in employment through various directives, including education. And so it is a legal construct that we have to try to rectify past injustices in this country with groups of people. And it has always been insufficient, but critical. And there's plenty of research that shows that it works today, but that is the reality of ultimately what it is. It is a law that provides some recourse for resolving the past wrongs of this nation. And as we think about affirmative action today, whether it's struck down or not, the real question for us is, how do we begin to design a society that is just and fair for everyone. We're gonna get into that conversation a little bit today, but I want everyone on this call to consider if it's not for affirmative action, what is it? And I asked that question at the top of this session because when you think about this nation, we have never corrected the faulty foundation that we live on. And as a result of that today, you still have one in three Americans who are economically insecure. That's one in three people, 40 million of them are white. And so while we say we want to be race blind, the country was fundamentally founded on, on race and a very toxic way of seeing race and not seeing the humanity of some groups of people. So as we go forward, that issue is going to continue to stand, whether it's this law or something else. And that is the invitation for folks on this call today, for us to begin to think about how do we repair some of the wrongs of the past and actually move forward so that we have a flourishing multiracial democracy. Thank you, Michael. Jared, do you have some points to add? Not much more to add. I think you. I think I anticipate you're likely to get to this a little bit in terms of the background of the cases, but I think I just would name and elevate that in the context of university admissions, affirmative actions is an opportunity for schools and universities to address those past harms that Michael has named, right, and give some some preferential treatment or some criteria and some bias how they may allow certain students to enter their class to help meet the sort of demographic composition of the community that they not only are established in, but are also the broader economic system in which we're all operating in terms of ensuring um, that our student bodies represent the population at large. Great. Thank you for that. So let me turn and give a little bit of a brief background concerning these two pending affirmative action cases. So there are two cases in which the Supreme Court will, is planning to consider whether to uphold the ability of universities to consider race in college admissions. Students for fair admissions versus president and fellows of Harvard and students for fair admissions versus University of North Carolina. In both cases, the organization Students for Fair Admissions is led by an anti-affirmative action crusader, Edward Bloom. And he is again, after previous failed efforts, seeking the elimination of all race conscious admissions practices. Twice already, Supreme Court has rejected Bloom's arguments and ruled that universities can consider race and admissions to promote diversity on campus and enrich students' learning experience, as Jared was referring to. But it is now believed that the court intends to reverse itself and turn back the clock. 
a decision blocking universities' abilities to consider race will almost certainly mean a significant drop in the number of students of color being admitted to selective universities. In fact, that's exactly what the lower courts in both cases found after closely studying several race-neutral alternatives. Michael, let me turn to you first here with this next question. Why does a case about higher education admissions matter for other organizations? It matters because what usually starts in higher education and with, in regards to this topic doesn't stay there. And it would be reasonable to expect people to retreat from the advances that they've made, stepping into diversity, equity, and inclusion, even belonging, stepping into those areas. But here's the reality. As a CEO, I'm already authorized to enact a different possibility. I actually don't need the law to see other people's humanity. <laughs> I can hire from diverse pools today. I don't have to ask board permission for that. I can look around my organization and see who's there and who's not there. I can ask myself the question, am I paying people fairly? I can do all those things today if I have the right head and heart consciousness. And we've really got to get to that point eventually. We still do need a legal construct to help us out until we get there. But what I want leaders to think about today is that in our own leadership, what happens with affirmative action is quite inconsequential because I am already authorized to enact a different possibility today if I choose to, right? I could have my firm be diverse or it could not be. And so I really want people to hold the power that they have in the seat that they currently sit in. And what I also want people to think about, because this is something that we don't research, but it's gonna be the downfall of this nation if we don't get to it. What happens to a nation founded on slave labor, stolen land, and genocide never really apologizes for it or corrects for it and keeps hurtling forward till you get to a place that the thing that you never really loved is actually getting ready to become the majority in the nation? <laughs> Whether you like it or not, the majority in this nation is getting ready to be people of color. And when you set out that trajectory, trying to crush people of color by dismantling laws of this simply further weakens the foundation of this democracy. And I really want us to begin to think about what we're doing to the nation because people of color aren't going anywhere. So if this is going to be the future that we're going to have, that 100 million is, number is going to continue to go up and it's going to continue to negatively impact all of us. So what do you believe we've learned from previous attempts to resist race conscious policies? The first thing I would say is that contestation doesn't mean retreat. This is, in this democracy, all of us are allowed, quite frankly, are invited to advance a different vision of America. And what I would ask folks who care about these issues to consider is, how do we begin to advance refinements, enhancements to affirmative action or other laws that would allow for the reckoning and the repair that needs to happen in this nation and ultimately for us to progress forward. So I really want people to understand that I don't begrudge the people who want a different outcome. It's their right. It's absolutely their right. And it's our right to also have the courage and the conviction to actually want to advance a different vision. We know affirmative action has worked repeatedly. The data says that. We know public programs work that lift that 100 million up out of poverty into the middle class. 
But the fundamental problem in this nation is that there is a hierarchy of human value that we do not want to reckon with. We consider some people worthy and other groups that are not. And that's why I said, whether you deal with affirmative action positively or negatively, it's quite inconsequential. The operating system of this nation is the thing that we have to deal with because it's the thing that is toxic. This hierarchy of human value has to be dealt with. And when you take away affirmative action, you may negatively penalize black and brown folks, but that hierarchy is still gonna stand and there will be other groups that will be punished going forward. Thanks for that, Michael. Jared, let me turn to you next. If the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action and takes away race-conscious admissions, what are some of the anticipated impacts from that for businesses? Sure, thank you. So I think just to structure my thinking in a couple of different ways, I outline this in a couple of different sort of ways in terms of the impacts. One are the certain direct legal challenges that folks anticipate. The Supreme Court's ruling isn't likely to be the last, the end of the conversation. That's going to be the start of the conversation, particularly as it relates to the use of race-based race or race-conscious policies in hiring um, and in the workforce, generally, whether it's at universities or whether it's in, in companies. So there are likely to be, I think people expect continued challenges to companies, diversity or DEI programs more broadly, or the JETI programs and in terms of current initiatives that they have, there's likely to be impacts in terms of company operations, in terms of the development of products and services employees as impacted by uh, the talent pool that companies are pulling in from it, from universities and colleges or trade schools or otherwise. And then there are broader economic impacts, as Michael has underscored, our country's demographics are changing and the world's changing. And most of the companies are operating with a global footprint. The elimination of a race-based or race-conscious policy that allows schools and universities to inform and, and provide a pipeline to or our major companies that have diverse workforces, diverse products and services will trickle down and trickle out rather into to the broader economy. So I'll pause there because I have ideas in terms of what companies can do given that landscape. But I think companies should be looking at this as both an internal sort of legal challenge that they'll continue to see in the near term and in the long term across not only just their DEI programs that have to do with race, but also as we've already seen this year, companies being challenged on their stances across a number of issues, including their stances on LGBTQ issues and um, their and, and the services they provide to their and benefits that they provide to their employees, including things that support women and their reproductive health. Great. Thank you for that. Based on some of the potential negative impacts of a ruling, what are some of the ways businesses can take action to safeguard or protect their investments in building diverse companies and workforces? Awesome. Thank you. So I think, again, I'll take this in a couple of different ways. I'm thinking first I'll start internal, which is one, companies should be thinking about how a decision to end affirmative action is going to affect their internal operations. Let's talk about the folks in your, you're in your house, right? That's your employees and the folks likely to be directly in, involved in the development of products and services, the folks likely to be considering working for those companies, et cetera. And so reiterating a company's commitment to building and maintaining a diverse workforce organization, I think that needs to be high up on the list for folks who, particularly companies who in the last few years have especially committed to addressing racial injustice, given things that happened in 2020 and folks' greater commitment in the public sort of support for that in recent years, committing to corporate accountability initiatives that have been focused more and more focusing on racial equity and DEI in the workplace. A lot of those are, are emerging or have been a longstanding, and there are a couple, including ones that are led by policy, such as the development of corporate racial and economic equity standards that are in the development 
Kellogg Foundation and another partner in the philanthropic sector has an expanding equity platform, which companies have been kind of engaged to, to understand how to embed DEI throughout their workforce. Also, some broader things in, term, in terms of internal work, assessing a company's hiring data and in, identifying any barriers that you may have in terms of di hiring diverse talent and surfacing any factors indicators that actually support long-term hiring of a diverse workforce. As Michael noted, this doesn't have to be something that is done only because affirmative action is in place or, be, or is effective because it ends. We all have the power within ourselves and we have the power as companies and leaders to actually identify what's possible and how to actually ensure diverse workforces generally. So let me just pause there and say that's some thinking around what companies can do now internally. There's some work I think companies need to be thinking about in terms of a long game in terms of their work in this space, particularly as racial equity more broadly. And that's in terms of thinking about how this conversation's had in general. We've seen how major landmark rulings on social justice issues affect the public discourse and affects the business environment in, creating, in terms of creating an uncertain economic environment for companies to operate. So I think companies can leverage their internal infrastructure to help influence and inform the conversation a bit, to help it ensure that there's good faith discussion had and to ensure that policies and legal discourse that's had around this topic actually supports their long-term interests. So in terms of supporting uh, in terms of some actions they could take in terms of that, supporting campaigns by industry groups or with their peers to help inform colleges, universities, how they utilize the policy and what the impacts that may have on their company, and also helping the broader public understand what the importance of a diverse workforce is to them and what the importance of developing diverse products and services are for them. Um, and then in terms of work that may be coming down the pipeline further on, building out your infrastructure in terms of your legal infrastructure, as I named, there's likely to be additional challenges to this work in the future. So ensuring that your company has the actual capacity, whether it's to track the policies that are being developed at the state and local level or the cases that are being brought into different lower level courts, having that infrastructure in-house is super important for companies' ability to to not just respond in a reactive way to rulings that are coming, but actually engage, whether through amici briefs, other sort of public notes to help inform the public about the benefits of diversity programs and the benefits of race conscious programs, particularly as Michael's noted, in a country where we founded our work, our workers off of slave labor and that history of discrimination. So I think there's a range of things companies need to do in-house to help shore up the work that they're doing and bolster support and understanding of where their commitment lies. And externally, there's a lot of work in terms of the broader landscape that companies can do, among other things that I've named, to ensure that the discourse around affirmative action and just racial equity more broadly and diversity more broadly is had, such that they actually have a more sustainable and certain business environment. Wow, that, there was a lot in there. Thank you for laying that out. Those are fantastic points about how companies can navigate the impacts over the long term. Michael, do you have anything that you'd like to add yes. to what Jared laid out? Yeah, I love what Jared laid out. That's exciting to hear. And it's so powerful to see when people are actually doing it out in the community and people are really do doing this work in big ways. I would also invite people to think about a couple of things. PolicyLink defines equity as just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. The operative word there is all. You can take away the words equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. You can take all those words away. And the thing that we're working towards is the aspiration of the all. Now, there's a way to get to the aspiration of the all if your heart is right. So you don't have to really be worried about this moment. If you disaggregate the data in your workplace and other places, 
you will begin to see who needs support where there is more work to do. And if you're willing to follow where the data takes you, you are gonna be in an equity conversation without ever using the words. Sometimes you will be helping white folks and they're gonna need a little something different than Latin folks. So the reality is if you follow the data is providing you a way to see the work. Another thing to think about is that if CEOs and leaders are curious, they will find ways to improve their practice. I'm gonna give you a practical example of some really good work coming out of the Department of Treasury. I was at the Department of Treasury last week and there were some researchers that came in to look at their data during a period where they open up their data. Now here's an institution that is race blind. And what those researchers discovered, they were looking for something else. And what they discovered was that their practices were creating an environment in which they were auditing people of color at an extremely high rate. It was showing that there was racial bias in their auditing practice. Now, company has no race neutral, discovers in their data that it is causing a problem. And what was so exciting about that, instead of burying that, they begin to trouble the question, how do we improve our system so that outcome isn't achieved anymore? That's what happens when you can be curious about the impacts of your work on populations. And then when you have the courage not to bury it, but to see it as the natural evolution of things we have to improve. So the treasury gives us a really good path forward to say, even when the organization is race neutral, there will be sometimes racial bias that creeps up and we can still boldly and courageously deal with it in a way that sets a marker for how we should deal with things day in and day out in our organizations. Great. Thank you for that, both of you. Before I turn to the next question, I just want to let the audience know that you certainly can raise questions yourself. If you have any, please feel free to put them in the Q&A chat box and I'll pick them up as we proceed and pass them along to our two speakers. So let me just turn now to a question of mine that causes me the biggest issue when I think about affirmative action and DEI programs. And that is, how can businesses with DEI programs fight the unfortunate and wrong suggestion that affirmative action is no longer needed because the U.S. has reached a point where everyone is treated equally? And I raise that question because a similar view was suggested by Chief Justice Roberts and other justices on the court when the Supreme Court struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Within days or weeks of that decision, several states passed legislation that made it harder for historically marginalized groups to vote. So in that context, how can businesses with DEI programs fight that suggestion? If you're spineless, you can't fight. The reality is this is where I get extremely angry, <laughs> especially as a person of color. You say you want a race neutral America, but yet we're not the ones constructing these laws that are harming folks. You just acknowledged it. You make my mother have to stand in line for eight hours to vote because you want to disenfranchise me. And then you go a step further and you make it illegal for me to even give her a bottle of water. This is actually a law in the books, folks. We just saw some of the major banks, not even five years ago, get penalized for still redlining today. Look at what we're doing with transgender folks today. So the very folks who desire this race-blind nature, 
seem to have a hellified propensity for acting in a race-based way when they have the freedom to show us what they will actually do. So what I would say to folks is if you've set the right course and you started this work because you thought it was the right work, this is a moment to stand firm because if you're not gonna stand firm, you, you might as well understand that there's gonna be hell to pay around this country because the folks who are not afraid to advance their version of America, they're advancing a version of America that is quite toxic for men, for women, for people of color, and what you ultimately have to understand, and this is why I keep going back to that 100 million number, 40 million of it are white. And when you continue to craft race-based policies, it always jumps host. So practically speaking, I live in the Bay in California. You read a book like The Color of Law, you'll see how our education system was constructed around race-based policy. So what that means in California, in, in the Bay Area right now, is that folks don't consider public education to be the best product if you've got money. The problem with that is because folks now can't afford their mortgage or their rent and to pay for private school for their children. So white families, middle class Black families, Asian families who had to say, hey, I had nothing to do with this race thing years ago. You're right. You didn't have anything to do with it, but you live with the sins of it to, to this day. You can't afford to live in the Bay, even though you're making 200,000 plus. So what I would say in this moment is this is not necessarily a philosophical or intellectual moment, even though there are those areas. This is a leadership moment. This is a vision moment. And it's time for us to decide that we're going to stand firm on the things that we, st we started. We're not going to be ashamed of those things. And we're going to live in that, that, that desire to get to the ultimate aspiration of equity, which was for the all in the first place. Got it, Michael, thank you very much. Jared, from your perspective, how can businesses with DEI programs fight that suggestion that affirmative action is no longer needed? So I'd like to live in the world that we have, not the world that I, I wish we had. That's not a response to Michael, that's just an acknowledgement for the business ecosystem that we're in, right? In the world that we have, I think businesses already, they make they can leverage their voice and they leverage their presence, they leverage their products and their services to say a lot just by being in a place, just by having certain products and just by actually engaging in certain communities. So I'll start with the maybe potentially easier low-hanging fruit here, which is to say that when businesses, they can fight this by showing up in certain communities. They can fight this by putting their businesses and companies in certain their their, their offices and headquarters and their retail shops in certain places. We all know when we see a certain grocery store chain in our community, what that sort of indicates. We all know what it means when we don't see certain grocery stores in our communities, what that indicates. Externally, as I mentioned before, businesses can certainly also use their communications infrastructure, their government affairs infrastructure, their philanthropic resources to actually engage uh, in the public discourse around this to, to, through marketing campaigns or through public information campaigns to help inform the public's understanding of how certain policies impact their businesses and how certain what diversity means and what it actually brings to business. We all love a story of uh, someone who has gone through experiences that we all can relate to that helps drive innovation within a company. And it's particularly when it relates to a product that we utilize, right? Who doesn't love that? So I'll start there with the easy, but in terms of something, some things I think that require some tougher conversations around a business. Again, I'll start, I'll go back to what I said at the top, which is I like to live in the world that we have and like we that we're in. And the world that we have is a world in a where we have the legal capacity for companies to actually engage in our electoral system. So the points that Michael is making in terms of certain elected officials creating policies, both at the local state or at the local state and federal levels, they have 
that position oftentimes because of the dollars that resource them to get there. And so I just want to to name that there are likely some ways that companies can think about how they guide those resources to those officials, particularly if they are in alignment, those officials and with the things that they say and the things that they do, if they're alignment with companies' values and commitments to diversity, if a company's truly committed to diversity, if they're truly committed to a good faith understanding of a topic or an issue, if they're really understanding what racial justice requires in this country and acknowledgement requires in this country, you may or may think about the ways in which you give to certain elected officials who then take action otherwise. And I'm not saying that folks should or should not go do anything, but I do think that as companies, we know that companies in this world that we live in give dollars to elected officials. And those companies then may, as we have all seen in recent weeks and months, sometimes fall prey or come under under fire from those officials, right, for their stances, for their products, for their services. Um, and in this world that we live in, uh, those companies can certainly think about giving their corporate political giving in ways that actually align with their actual interests in the long term. Imagine yeah, that thank you what that. Jared said. Oh, please. If folks want affirmative action dismantled, if companies would just walk around the neighborhoods where their own employees live and their customers live and ask, where is the design of our laws and our regulations harming those groups? and begin to dismantle that harm, imagine the power. So see, you don't have to worry about affirmative action. If you were just asking yourself, ask your employees every day, where are current laws on the books harming them? Where's it harming your customers? On one side, you've got all this great philanthropic work going. Ask yourself, where is the construction of the design of the place that you're working in being undercut by harmful laws and regulations? And then work to dismantle that stuff. See, that is our work as well. No need to worry about affirmative action when there's probably 20 other laws on the books in the neighborhoods that you already work that are harming your employees and your customers every day. So see, we have the power to walk around in those neighborhoods where we live and work and just ask ourselves, just look around and just say, where is harm happening? And then to Jared's point, use your political muscle to dismantle those things. Sometimes the looking around at things like affirmative action becomes the work avoidance. And we act like we have no agency to do anything else. The most powerful thing we can do right now is to not act helpless. To, we're not helpless. We do not have to avoid the work. Jared just gave us a litany of things that we can do today, regardless of what's going on in the larger environment. Thank you for that addition. I'm going to turn now to a question from the audience. An interesting one that has a couple of different parts to it. But this is the question, how do we, NGOs or even the general public, consumers, etc., know that companies are doing the work internally to create a diverse and equitable work environment? Should they set public goals? And finally, how should they be talking about this work externally? Michael, you wanna give that a shot? I would say sometimes in the environment that we're in, companies don't need to be talking about the work that they're doing. <laughs> they should just do it. I don't need to go around celebrating what is already my responsibility to do. My responsibility as the head of PolicyLink is to have a diverse workforce. That's what I want and I can do it and I don't need to have, be celebrated for that. That's my job. So I think in this moment, a lot of the work we need to do, we need to be quiet about because the political environment is not there. It doesn't mean we don't do the work. So that's what I would say about talking about the work. I would say goals are one option. 
just looking at the data is another option Jared gave us earlier. There are lots of ways in which you could be creative. Like for an example, REI looked at its supplier ch supply chain and said, we need to diversify that supply chain. And they launched an initiative called Path Ahead Ventures. And Path Ahead Ventures is about bringing leaders of color into the supply chain to design outdoor gear for an increasingly diverse market. This is an important body of work. It's not characterized as racial equity or anything like that. It was a business entity saying, you know what? If I want to capture a greater market share of this diverse market out here, I need to have suppliers that know how to design for them, to construct products for them. And that is just a practical example of leadership saying this is an important thing for us to do when they're doing it to this day, putting millions into these small businesses that would have never had a chance into that supply chain. So it's that type of walk around leadership like that that becomes exciting. Thanks. Thanks for that. Jared, any comments about that? How do we know that companies are doing the work internally to create diverse and equitable work environments? Gosh, it's plus one to everything Michael said. And <laughs> like, and we live in this like two, it's like a yes and world we live in, right? You have to, I so appreciate sometimes you just need to do the work and that there are companies that should do the work and we don't need to be public about it. You don't need to talk about it so much. And in some ways we know that the business environment actually operates off a sort of did they do it and did they do it well kind of environment where folks are scared to dip their toe into the water unless they see someone else go full on the water and say, it's warm first. I'm close to a beach town, so part of my beach references. But I'll just share that in some ways, it does, we certainly know that it will help when leading companies actually take the risk and hold firm and stand by their commitments, right? And they're doing the work and it helps the public understand that work. The other thing that comes to mind is we do this work at the Center for Business and Social Justice. Our, our whole remit is focused on helping support and facilitate discourse between the private sector and the civil society sector to help find some potential alignment for meaningful work on social justice. And so I want to name something that often I find in our work, which is that a lot of times there, that people forget that there are individuals within companies. We see brands, we see big companies, and we know the impact that a company or corporation has on our communities. But in, within those companies, there are diversity officers, there are justice initiative directors, there are philanthropic leaders, there are, are folks who work within supply chain, who are on the governance, who are on the board, who are in procurement, who are in the retail stores, who care about the same things that the civil society, philanthropic society cares about. Um, and they sometimes, I think we don't have that understanding, and this is not me saying that companies all mean and they have all the people. In fact, a lot of companies don't have those folks and actually should get resourced with some of those folks. But I think it's important for folks to understand that there are real people within those companies who do care about these things. And those people live within our, live within our communities and they actually do care to make um, an effort. And I know that within our great capitalistic system, we have a lot of challenges to address that are at the root of capitalism. But in the system that we currently have and all live in, there are people within those companies and there are people outside those companies in the nonprofit sector and otherwise who actually are doing well and actually are committed to the work and committed to finding ways to, to live healthy, thriving lives and just lives for all while also living in the system that we have. And so I would just want, want to underscore that because in terms of the question of how we should know that companies are doing good, right? And if they're committed to the work, so we, we need to take it down to the individual. And we should start with the company have st staff within the company that actually can do the work. And can we help those people 
get the resources they need to actually do this work in the long term. Instead of thinking about a big brand, a big tech company doing the right thing, let's think about the people that are at the companies. Let's think about the people in the communities that need the support. We are doing this work in silos and vacuums. We're all doing this work as people. And I think what we, what we tend to miss in our discourse around the impact of corporations in our communities is that there are people that we know, our family members, our loved ones, our friends, who are working at those companies who actually just need support in helping that company get to where they need to get to. Thank you. Thank you for that, both of you. I have another question from the audience. So let me put this one out to both of you, and I'll start with Jared first on this one. So the questioner says, I cannot agree with everything said more. Thank you for speaking truth to power. Regarding affirmative action, how can we ensure that companies are not focusing their recruiting and inclusion efforts on only on top tier universities and communities? How do we ensure that that certain communities outside of the Northeast and West Coast are remembered? For instance, most tribal communities are outside the usual pipelines. So Jared, any thoughts on that? It's a great question. And I'll admit, I don't, some of the specifics of it, I want to take some time to think about. There's so much to think about here in terms of how a company decides to site its headquarters, decided its offices, right? And I'm thinking of without, I, I don't want to, I don't want to call anyone out in this conversation as we're trying to call folks into conversations. So I'll just say that I'm thinking of uh, in the last five, 10 years, right? We know that there have been major conversations among some major companies that have considered where they were going to be cited and where they're going to go. And there have been competitions that have leveraged public dollars to help some of those companies figure out where they're going to cite themselves. And I'm thinking about some of the policies that are come up in relation to that or under or otherwise that in, around inclusionary zoning, affordable housing, and other things that actually that surface when you're in the public discourse that incentivize workers to be in certain places and tax breaks that incentivize companies to be in different places. So I'll just name that there are a couple things that are coming to mind when it comes to company siting in terms of just where they are, in terms of the impact, in terms of where folks get to work or what companies work for. But in terms of recruitment themselves and how companies actually engage certain universities. I definitely want to take some time with that because I think that just, that's sometimes a case-by-case scenario, but it's also, um, it's all fueled by our current ecosystem, which tends to drive folks into uh, to different channels, right? And, or to different specific channels. And I think we certainly need to have a broader conversation about the pipelines that that bring folks into to different employment opportunities. But I'll, uh, I would love to come back to that at some point. Absolutely. Thanks, Jared. Michael, your thoughts on this? I'm hopeful in this conversation because of what I see out in the country. We see folks developing new tech centers at historically black colleges as an example. We see corporate leaders beginning to create space for returning citizens, which has been a big barrier in the past. We see corporate leaders beginning to say, a lot of these positions don't need to have a formal four-year education, a college degree in order to access them. There are some good things happening and yet more is needed. And so I'm hopeful for this moment that those are the types of things that are being done out there to create those different pathways into organizations. But to my earlier point, leaders can do this today. We had to ask ourselves as a think tank, we can recruit at the best colleges and universities, and we do, but that is insufficient if we want to have the best thinking. I mean, we had to get deliberate about finding folks who don't have degrees, quite frankly, finding returning citizens, recruiting for our indigenous brothers and sisters that are not in our formal networks. That's my job. 
And what I'm the invitation that I'm signaling to this, what Jared said about calling in is I really want us to reimagine our roles as CEOs, as leaders, as stewards of these organizations. I really want you to think about not acting powerless when you have so much power. And we really have to own that. Sometimes I don't feel like I have a lot of power in this role, but I really do. And I need to step into that. And if you go to something like the Corporate Racial Equity Alliance, you'll see a host of tools that we are developing out that will give you some guideposts about how to step into this work, regardless of what happens with affirmative action. And what I'm excited about is that this conversation is a 20 plus year conversation that we're having right now. A lot of this stuff will not happen overnight. There is a lot of good things going on. And quite frankly, there are a lot of things that still cause me to be concerned. But what I can tell you, this is never in my professional career, there's never been a better time to be able to advance authentic work around these issues and to be able to have it take root. So just think about, as a CEO, I don't have to create special work groups to do things. <laughs> I don't need to do all that. That ends up becoming the work avoidance. I can subtly walk around and just ask HR, go to tribal nations and start doing fairs and recruiting. I don't need to say anything more than that, <laughs> the subtle directive. And so let's not act powerless in this moment. You know, when CEOs want a stadium in a particular place, you watch how they do. <laughs> when they want something, a new manufacturing facility in a place, we watch how they pull out all the stops. This is just as important work. It is the nation building work to do. And what I can guarantee you is this, you can do this work today or it'll be waiting for us a hundred years from now. And the thing that I will ultimately ask you is if you step away from this work, please do not come to organizations like ours the next time someone is shot, God forbid, or the next time someone else loses a right and say, what should we do? I want you to remember that you seeded this moment. You gave up on this moment. <laughs> And you allowed folks who wanted a different America to advance. And we got our own responsibility for that if we take that action. So if you choose not to be in this moment, what I ask you to do is to accept the shit that will be piled upon us because it will be high and deep. And don't ask the rest of us to worry about it and to try to fix it. Because what we are trying to signal to you now is that we are making momentum and we have a fighting chance to fix things. But if we retreat, we will lose this moment and we will lose this nation. Thank you for that. I've had a couple of comments come in while you both were speaking. One was pointing us to this policy link article on corporate performance standards on racial and economic equity, a developmental approach and methodology. And there was a follow-up question that we have from someone in the audience on that issue. Jared, you have a follow-up question, actually. Oh, I have a follow-up note on the on the question itself, but I definitely want to uh, underscore uh, the link that was shared around the corporate performance standards around racial economic equity that was shared in the chat. I think folks should check that out for sure, especially if you're with a company. As I mentioned earlier, there are some opportunities for companies to engage in the development of those standards and the launch of them, and want to underscore that for my colleagues here on the call. The thing I wanted to bring it back to is that the way my brain works sometimes is I see something and it takes just a couple of seconds to really find an opportunity. And I, the question around how to ensure BIPOC communities aren't excluded and that are not on the coast. I want to, I just want to lift something up that, that came to mind, which is community development financial institutions. 
and the role that they play around the country in supporting entrepreneurs of color. What two things, because Michael said something that triggered this for me, which is the owning the power. I, really, I just really love the the challenge to just own the power that we have. One is that like we don't have to sit around and wait for companies to hire us, right? That's one truth. And the second truth is we live in a world with companies that hire us all, right? So let's own that. And so lean into those, lean into that as much as possible. But I bring about community development financial institutions in response to that because there are organizations in our communities that are publicly supported with our own public dollars that actually get resource to, to develop. They get advising work and they're led by entrepreneurs of colors and business owners who are black and indigenous and other and from other backgrounds. And their whole purpose is to support them in building out their employees. And a lot of times their tool is to provide them with loans or other resources to help them hire folks. We live in America. We live in the world as we is. We know that our policy leaders love it when jobs are created. And I want folks to, to I would recommend folks take a look at this U.S. Treasury, um, which supports the program and look at it, see if there are any local community development financial institutions in their communities, because those institutions actually support hiring of folks of color and folks in low-income communities more broadly. And there's some restrictions to that policy in that their dollars tend to um, only get, they only are able to receive those loans if the work that they're doing, if those businesses can actually hire employees. But we actually know already that Black-owned businesses tend to be the kinds of businesses that actually don't hire a lot of employees. Um, and so when we think about how we can innovate our economy to actually be more inclusive, for instance, and how we can actually shape our policies and use our public resources to influence and actually build an economy that works for us all, that actually is inclusive as well. We shouldn't be dependent only on those companies that exist, only the names and the brands that we exist operating in places that we know exist. We actually have policies, programs, organizations throughout this country that actually can actually have an influence in actually shaping our broader economy. And I just would love to, to recommend folks check out check out the opportunities that may exist to help expand those institutions so that they're actually providing full supports for, for the, the mom and pop shops owned by black and brown folks throughout this country that are looking to expand and get the resources they need to have the capital and the investments that they need to survive um, so that we can have folks hired in different communities throughout and actually have different kinds of opportunities for hiring of different people from across the country. Thanks for that, Jared. Thanks for adding that in. I just want to let the audience know we still have a few more minutes. We could field a, a couple more questions, I think. While you're thinking about those, I've got one, and I'll go back to Michael first for this. Michael, you've you've commented a few times that you don't need affirmative action programs in order to set things right and do the right thing and make sure that you have diverse talent within your organization. But let's just say that the Supreme Court does what we think it's going to do, and it starts down this path of getting rid of affirmative action as a viable tool for diversifying workplaces. Outside of those programs, and I think you've talked about a few, in fact, I think you mentioned that you could go to your HR and just say, this is what I want you to do. And this, these are the areas, these are the schools, these are the places that I need you to go in the workforce to find talent for me. So outside of affirmative action programs, what other tools can businesses use to develop and recruit diverse talent and equip them with the skills to thrive in our global marketplace? The first thing I would say is we should all have a founder's orientation to the nation. And what I mean by that is that it was always imperfect and the invitation is for us to continue to perfect our economy and our democracy. So if we see these things as living organisms that need to be perfected, we can take a little of the stress off of us like it's such a bad thing. 
But the reason what I want us to do as leaders is to ask them, well, what is my contribution to perfecting our democracy and economy as long for the longest time I'm going to have in the seat that I'm in? And I really start with that head consciousness and the heart consciousness, because the reality is this. And this goes to what Jared was saying about living in the world that we currently live in. If your heart is not right for this work, you just won't do it. So you just need to stop bullshitting yourself. I can't make you do this, right? There's so many good technical solutions out there. And this is where I also get frustrated. Why is this the only area that corporate leaders act like model learned helplessness? You can send rockets to the moon and back. You can do all sorts of other things. You tell us you're the best and the brightest. But when it comes to the liberation of everyone, you play dumb as hell. That is not acceptable. It is not acceptable. And I don't believe that folks are helpless here. And I really want to start there. Why is this the only area in a firm where folks can play dumb for years and allow to stay employed? We're not going to make progress until we get real about some of these behaviors. Think about Uber and how brilliantly it got around a closed system being the taxi system in New York. Think about the power of that. We are creative as hell when we want to be. And what I'm asking us to think about is, how do we get as creative as the racist? Mm -hmm. How do we get creative for liberation for everyone? How do we have the spine that the racist has? In so many instances, what has happened over the last couple of years, I really respect because folks have told me what they were going to do to me. They told me how they were going to do it. And they followed through. They're doing some of the most results-based oppressive work that I've ever seen. And I only wish we could be equally as have a backbone that is straight, could be clear about what we wanted to do, and then actually follow through on it. What I want us to be honest about is this. If your head and your heart aren't here as a leader, there's nothing that bringing in a chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer is going to do that's going to make this work. We got to stop putting one person or a couple of people up as slaughter to slaughter when your head and your heart isn't in it. If your head and heart is in it, then if you follow the data, it's going to have you in an equity conversation, a gender conversation, a class conversation. And then the only question becomes, will you do what the data says? And it is why I started with the 100 million. I don't talk about race and equity because folks don't want to hear that from me. I talk about that 100 million. And there's one distinction. When that 100 million takes me to poor whites, I don't have to call a board meeting to ask if we're going to help them. My organization doesn't start convulsing because they're afraid of the political blowback that's going to come from that. We don't have political blowback. That's our job. See, if you really care about the all, this is not a moment to be worried about. <laughs> I really care about the all. So in my work, it is not a problem. So at the end of the day, whether you use the words or not, follow the data, it's going to put you right in the same conversation. And then the only question becomes, will you help? Will you do what the data says in regards to what everybody's humanity needs? And you have some other markers out there. The great John Powell gave us targeted universalism as another technical tool that we could use. So we have the technical tools to help us. And all of us on this call can provide those technical tools. But if the leadership is not there and the head and heart is not there, I really want us to stop fantasizing that we're going to be getting a better outcome because Jared is right. You got to live in the world that we have, and we're creating this world, and we got to own that, good or bad. Jared, anything to add? Nothing out here. Okay, very good. There is one last question. We have just maybe a few more minutes. 
And so I'll pose this. The questioner says, this may be outside the scope of this conversation, but what action can be taken to reverse and effectively respond to the attacks on our education system where Black, Indigenous, and people of color uh, history is no longer being taught or allowed? Because none of this matters if history is erased and not taught. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts. My my one is for to request this the person asking the question to reach out because I believe there's an organization that's coming to mind that has some resources or some information on this, and I have to just when my brain is fresh to drum up what the name of that organization is, and I want to share with the person. So I'm happy to drop my uh, email in the chat, or if hopefully I get shared out with the participants. But I understand the question and think there's a I want to provide an informed response from some folks who are leading this work. On it. Thank you. Michael, last word on it. Yeah, the reality is folks who want to deny our history will lose at the end of the day. This is the power and the beauty of technology today. We should be educating our own families and children and not, quite frankly, leaving it to the school district. Our liberation has to start in our own households, right? You And what I know, love about people of color, none of this is brand new to us. We've learned how to survive and overcome in this system. So let's not act like this is a stressful moment for us. Folks can't deny us our history. We are the ones who continue to make history in this country. And so what I would ask people to do is to stop responding to everything bad that is happening out in the world, because we already know this. As a Black man in this country, none of this is new. I'm not actually sitting around, nor is my family worried about whether affirmative action is going to be here or not. My family ain't never felt affirmed in the first damn place. I'm also not worried about you teaching my history because you've never taught it. And so I'm not going to keep asking institutions and leaders to do something that they've shown me they have no heart to do. We can do those things now. So just as we're talking about corporate leaders and they not having to participate and learn helplessness, as a community of people, we also have to stop participating in learned helplessness. We have our communities of faith, faith. We have our Greek organizations. We have a wide variety of institutions, our civic organizations that can take the place of being historian and liberator. So what I want all of us to think about on this call is that this was a liberating moment. The racists will not win, nor should we be worried about what the racist is going to do. Hell, they've been clear since the start of this nation. What I'm more concerned about, what will those of us who actually really do care about all really do for them? That's the thing we got to focus on right now. Let affirmative action be what it's going to be. And then get up tomorrow and figure out what will be the next thing. Affirmative action was always a patchwork. It was always an insufficient solution. I want you really to remember that, which is why I say you have to be have a founder's orientation. The real question for us now is, what do we have after affirmative action? And that's the opportunity for us to create that. Absolutely. Jared, any final or closing thought? Oh, this plus one, especially to the the keeping our history in mind piece. This country is only so many years old, and so we're in it for the long haul. And so I hope folks will take Michael's word to heed and seriously as folks are thinking about how they can do this work in the institutions and the challenges of it. I think we also often get a little discouraged by the momentary setbacks or the challenges, and I think it's important to keep the long game in mind. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our hour. Michael, Jared, I want to thank you both for taking the time for today's discussion. I also want to thank our audience for joining us today. With each episode, I'm thoroughly impressed by these discussions. Lots of meaningful points and action items from both of you today uh, during the discussion. 
So please be on the lookout for the announcement regarding our July episode. And thank you all again for joining us today. Have a great one. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.